Hello, welcome to EVN Report. My name is Maria Titizian, and this month, once again, I am joined by Dr. Nerses Kopalian. He is our security expert and the author of the EVN Security Briefing. Um, we will be talking about this month's security briefing for May 2023 called Mining for Security. Welcome to the program, Nerses. Thank you for having me, Maria. Uh, before we talk about uh, this conceptualization of mining for security, um, I think it's important that we do sort of dive into um, the ongoing sort of structural reconfigura reconfigurations um, to Armenia security context. And you talked about three main ones. And uh, again, just to put everything into context, I think we should go over them very quickly before we talk about this uh, very interesting um, concept that you have uh, proposed. First is the ongoing or deeper decoupling with Russia, a more active US presence in partially filling the Russian uh, vacuum. And third is Azerbaijan's ongoing attempts, surgical attempts to disrupt the peace process by continuously targeting Eastern Armenia. Uh, and not only, perhaps we should also uh, talk about how Aliyev, President Ilham Aliyev of Azerbaijan has ramped up the rhetoric this month, particularly on May 28th when he was in Lachi meeting with um, settlers there when he said that basically uh, the government of Artsakh should resign and he would provide them with amnesty. So let's start with this deeper decoupling Russia. There's three components here. One is arms, India, and CSTO. So if you could expand on that for our viewers, I think it would be really helpful. Of course. Um, so we've covered this quite a bit uh, in the last couple of months. Uh, since September of 2022, after the Jermuk invasion, uh, Armenia realized that its security architecture had completely collapsed and that Russia was no longer a uh, security guarantor or a reliable security ally. And so uh, it began the methodical process of decoupling, not by choice, but rather it had no other options because Russia was not able to fulfill its obligations. And then, of course, this brought up a few certain uh, pro problematic issues. Russia has attempted to continue uh, maintaining the dependency structure that we've talked about, where Armenia will perpetually be reliant on Russia. However, it is not meeting its obligations to reinforce that dependency structure. So it tells Armenia, for example, you should only buy arms from me, but when Armenia goes to buy arms for Russia, they have no arms to sell us. Yet when we try to purchase arms from other countries, such as India, Russia attempts to obstruct the process. So this is a very, very sort of a difficult situation to be in because uh, this uh, partnership with Russia that we've had is not contributing to the deterioration of Armenian security uh, architecture. This is why the decoupling has taken place. So in that context, aside from Armenia's diplomatic uh, pivot to the West uh, in an attempt to basically stave off uh, Azerbaijan uh, to some extent, not sufficiently, of course, uh, Armenia has also now diversified uh, its access to the international arms industry, India being the more prominent one. But as we've seen in the last few days, when Armenia's National Security uh, Secretary Armin Gregorian spoke, uh, we are diversifying and in, 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 uh, engaging in several conversations with the various countries in purchasing arms. So the decoupling, in essence, is not ideological in of itself. It's basically a byproduct of the raw power of the spirit that we have with Azerbaijan and the fact that Russia is not able to meet its obligations. Right, clearly. And uh, a few days ago or yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Foreign Minister Arad Mirzoyan also spoke about Armenia's um, membership in the Collective Security Treaty Organization, 
uh, which, uh, and he said, you know, sometimes that also acts as a stumbling block to Armenia being able to procure arms from other countries because of the obvious concern that Armenia could sort of bypass, not bypass, could funnel those arms to Russia technically. And, and so that has also become uh, uh, an obvious thing. And you spoke about uh, more American presence and how, uh, you know, S Secretary Blinken has also been very active in the negotiations process. Um, just before we move on to the mines, you know, Aliyev's comments on May 28, in my memory at least, seem to be some of the more, uh, for lack of a better word, severe uh, comments that he's made when he's actually talking about the president resigning and the parliamentarians, parliamentarians resigning, that he will grant them amnesty and the, the era of separatism is over. Uh, what do you think? Do you think there was a, a specific shift here that, that took place or is this just an ongoing continuous process? It's an ongoing continuous process. So uh, we've talked about this extensively. EVN has written uh, on the concept of liberal and illiberal peace. And we have to accept the fact that Baku, on its own terms, uh, does not want to sign a peace treaty because it violates or contradicts the strategic interests of the Aliyev regime. We've known this. Uh, we introduced the concept of ontological security to address this problem. So Aliyev has been forced to proceed with the negotiating process for two reasons. One, the extensive Western pressure, and that he has to proceed with the negotiating process, or else he'll be considering he doesn't want peace, and that's what's going to produce uh, other outcomes. So even though we know he doesn't want peace, the fact that he uh, continues to engage in the negotiating process, that kind of staves off more Western pressure. Thus, he continues uh, in a performative way to engage in peace. But every chance he finds to obstruct or slow down the process, he's going to do it. So his rhetoric shifts from basically one subject to the next. Or they create artificial barriers, such as the Korakwatsangasu Corridor. Or the fact that, for example, a certain Armenian official made a comment, therefore that's contradicting the peace process. Or this whole nonsense about enclaves now becoming an issue. So they create these artificial barriers. And then when those don't work, because every time Aliyev creates some kind of an obstruction, Armenia responds by saying, we disagree. However, we're still pushing for peace. We're still pushing for peace. So by speaking in the language of peace, Armenia basically keeps call calling Aliyev's bluff, where the international community goes to him and says, listen, you do all these sort of, you know, absurd rhetorical comments and engage in this sort of unacceptable behavior, <clears throat> yet Armenia continues to continue with the peace track. So they utilize these developments to sort of pigeonhole Baku into being unable to escape the peace process. So every chance that Aliyev finds, he basically attempts to do that. And since so this recent rhetoric is also that, uh, he understood that attacking Armenia is no longer acceptable, that the international community has put away red lines in front of him, that sovereignty, you can't for 30 years speak of sovereignty and then turn around and violate another country's sovereignty. So understanding his limitations in that context, he's now diverting his attention to Artsakh and engaging in sort of these absurd maximalist demands. The thing is, though, that's a very low cost effect of him to engage in that conversation because he knows he's basically talking about that. But any second he could back off of it. We've spoken about this uh, extensively. Uh, but the objective is to see what the international committee says. Does that disrupt the negotiating process? And how does Armenia response? Right. He's constantly... Obviously conjuring up new <laughs> absolutely he's trying to be destructive while armenia is being constructive and this is how basically the approach has been so while armenia keeps talking about the importance of giving stepanakit agency and having stepanakit baku negotiations aliyev responds with basically saying 
that's not going to happen. Oh, they need to dissolve. They need to bend their necks to me. Sort of this very medieval, primitive discourse. Um, and so the reason, of course, for that has become a lot more obvious uh, to disrupt the negotiating process. <clears throat> also, we should expect more, more uh, sort of uh, grotesque rhetoric from him the more he feels pigeonholed because he's kind of running out of options on this point. <clears throat> and the fact that Armin Grigorian basically suggested that uh, a peace treaty may be in sight by the end of the year, and I want to get my hopes up, that goes to suggest that uh, Aliyev is basically running out of uh, artificial barriers where he could convince the international community I can't sign. And so in that context, we need to uh, qualify his rhetoric, those developments within the broader context of the trajectory of how the talks are going. Great. Thanks for that, Nurses. I think it's really important that we do this once a month, and even though it might be a little I think it's important. Now, I want to talk about this mining for security. You know, for 30 years, sort of the narrative has always been, you know, Armenia uh, doesn't have any, um, it, it, there's no strategic interests uh, for the international community to be engaged with Armenia. Uh, we don't have oil, we don't have gas. Of course, these are all, uh, why should the world care about uh, the Armenian uh, condition, cause of what have you? But what you're proposing is is, is a new twist, is, is, is quite, um, innovative in that sense, uh, because Armenia's mines, of which we have quite a number of, you know, copper, molybdenum, and gold, um, has, have never been part of our security architecture, uh, nor has the potential securitization of the sector ever been considered, you know, a vital element uh, in, in terms of building alliances and strategic partnerships. So uh, again, Armenia has, you know, copper, molybdenum, iron, lead, zinc, gold. Um, we also have a wide range of industrial metals as well. Um, and so what you're proposing is for Armenia, uh, the government of Armenia to seek new partnerships. And again, I think important to note that most of the mines in Armenia are owned by companies that are Russian. So. This is a whole other conversation uh, as well, or part of the conversation. Talk to me about this, this strategy. Of course. So the concept is very, very straightforward. And it's not only specific to countries that have mines. Uh, as I know, as we discussed in the security report, <clears throat> countries like the Gulf states have natural resources. And so what they've done is they diversified the ownership of these uh, various uh, oil mines or the refineries uh, with various multinational corporations. And what that does is that if a sort of, you know, if a UK company, for example, has vested interest in country X, if France has a vested interest in country X, the US, Canada, Italy, et cetera, so on and so forth, right? Those brand companies now are basically invested in the stability of that given country because their corporations have an economic interest in there. So the logic here is that you, you diversify the natural resource that you have, in our case being the mineral thing, uh, mineral industry, to utilize that not only as a mechanism of diversifying your economy, but also diversifying your security. And this doesn't mean, of course, mining for security means these countries, the parent countries, are going to come and give weapons to Armenia to solve you know, X, Y, and Z problems. That's not how the logic works. But what it does is that it promotes both diplomacy and stability. So if Armenia has an issue, for example, and three, four countries could really not care about Armenia, therefore they're not going to utilize their diplomatic resources to do anything for us, in this case, 
knowing that their corporations do have vested interest in Armenia, they are going to utilize that diplomatic capital, that influence, so on and so forth, to advance Armenia's interests. So uh, an important component of this is that we both break the chain of isolationism that Armenia has suffered in the region for the longest time. Two, we utilize a resource that we already have that is being exploited in an unhealthy way to enhance our security. And three, it also allows us to demonopolize the mineral industry. We have to understand that the mineral industry is not only a big part of Armenia's economy, but it's also of strategic interest to the country. One, one of your most important strategic interests is dominated through the corporations that are ran by one country, right? That is a fundamental problem. So diversifying this also makes Armenia relevant to a large number of countries who otherwise would not have an interest in Armenia. We have to understand that if you don't provide a strategic incentive, those countries based simply on ideational variables or sympathy are not going to come and solve your problems. So what mining for um, security does is it diversifies our security capacities and allows us to engage in countries who in essence do want to invest in Armenia because we have something that's important for them. Okay, this sounds, um, you know, it, it sounds very interesting, very promising, but we also have to understand, you know, sometimes we're looking for quick fixes, and this obviously is not one of them, but it is, uh, but it is a multi-pronged approach to sort of the, the overall arching security architecture of Armenia. So this is one component of that. Um, fine, we understand that, but you talk about demonopolizing um, the mining industry. This is not an easy task uh, for any government to do, and, and Certainly, you know, this is a briefing, this is not a policy paper, and, and there are methods of doing that, but how, how realistic is this? It's, it's very realistic. Of course, it's going to be time-consuming, but uh, security strategy is always time-consuming. There's nothing easy when it comes to these kind of things, so we have to understand the long-term trajectory. <clears throat> but the approach is very straightforward. One, there has to be a mapping of, and there's obviously some level of mapping that we've seen, and it's been produced on Armenia's uh, resource basically availability and based on that map mapping armenia becomes very very sort of thing uh, attractive to a lot of these mining companies international mining companies that do want to tap into our, our armenia's resources but do that in a very responsible way that is consistent with best practices and international standards and so the terms that you contract as international corporations is commensurate with those expectations it's not one of those where things are grandfathered in and they continue basically destroying the environment and exploiting your resources in a fashion that produces you know uh, uh, consequences outcomes for the broader communities or the, or the, or the, uh, the environmental components that are involved. <clears throat> but the political process of this, of course, is going to be multi-tiered. First of all, in instances like this, this is a question of legislation. Armenia needs to, for example, change laws that enhance uh, the specific criteria for um, mining or mine ownership. Does it meet X, Y, and Z environmental standards? Does it meet X, Y, and Z best practices? Does it meet these standards, so on and so forth? Or is there sufficient modern technology that is utilized? So you basically create criteria that is not good for, for the interest of both the, the environment and the mining industry, as well as enhancing the quality uh, of your mineral industry as a, as a whole. And in that context, when you create that criteria, which is consistent to what many countries do throughout the world, that basically 
creates complications for the existing companies who simply have gotten either a free free ride or have received waivers or have purchased these mines, uh, you know, dollars on the penny because of the relation that they had with the previous regimes and thus are, are, are indirectly robbing the, robbing the Armenian people or the resources that we have. So legislation that creates sufficient and specific criteria that is commensurate with international standards, nothing incoherent, nothing absurd. What that's going to do is, is basically going to uh, not allow existing companies to continue operating the way they're doing. And once they decide that it's no longer commensurate with their economic interests, this is where these mines have become uh, open or available to uh, the international market. Also, there's also the process of basically having what are known as state-owned enterprises, where I mean, uh, the government requests 51% ownership of mines because these are national resources. A lot of countries do this. This isn't something new. Uh, and so creating legislation, creating criteria, and basically asking everybody who owns these mines to play by the rules is one important step. The factor here is that many of these companies, right, that operate are not used to playing by the rules. And that's fine. They can leave. And this is where it opens up for international investments. But fundamentally, a demonopolization begins with the passage of legislation that is commensurate with the interests of the country. And we haven't had this for a very, very long time. And so that is one mechanism of demonopolizing. Now, of course, there's a lot of literature and best practices on this. There are, uh, you know, international consortiums and, and mining sort of, you know, uh, consortiums, uh, researchers and scholars that, that uh, excel in the proper research and the proper legislation of how to proceed on this. Uh, that's not what we're talking about right now because that, that's a whole different subject of conversation. But we're not reinventing the wheel. What we're doing is we're saying we have a natural resource that has not been utilized to the interests of the country. Therefore, we need to do that. How do you go about going it? You utilize standards that others have to enhance this resource for your security and your economy. At the end of the day, and there's this, this sounds wonderful and, and, and very optimistic, um, but I think the problem has always been not necessarily in the legislation, but in the oversight and in, in all of the side room, back room dealings that have taken place. So again, it comes down to a matter of political will. Okay, so let's say the political will is in place and, and if there are excuse me, laws that need to come into line with international best practices. And this would, you know, you know, conveniently nudge these Russian companies out because it, it is no longer profitable for them. Or if we're talking about Armenia state-owned enterprise, Armenia saying 51%, would this not make investors, other investors skittish that the next government coming into power will then change these laws again? And it's, it's about ownership and rights uh, as well. So, there are a lot of hidden uh, pitfalls along this uh, road, but are these things that can be overcome, do you think? Most definitely. I would argue that the outcome is going to be the reverse, that when uh, corporations look at Armenia right now, they do understand that there are no set rules in the game. In the past, there were no rules in the game, that some had benefits, some had advantage, other don't, didn't. And thus, it was corruption and backdoor dealings that basically uh, deterred these companies from investing. But now that you create legislation, this is based on standards that everybody understands and practices, and you create an equal playing field, this is actually going to be more conducive to investments than what we've had for the longest time. So creating new laws that are com commensurate and consistent with international practices is actually a positive thing. And Armenia isn't doing this as a political act. If, for example, those given Russian country, excuse me, uh, um, co companies are able to meet these standards, 
then that's going to be the way it is. The argument isn't that we kick these companies out based on arbitrary standards, which is going to basically scare away other investors. That is not what we're talking about. This is why when we use terms like best practices and international standards, those are precisely designed to make it conducive to investment. So there are no shortcuts and there are no silver bullets. This is going to be a prolonged, tedious process. But we have to understand that once something is important to your security, you need to proceed accordingly as opposed to allowing to, for things to stand the way they are. This is the underlying argument. Well, I do want to talk about the Sotk gold mine. Uh, after the end of the 2020 Arsah War, as we know, half of the mine is now part of Azerbaijan. And uh, just yesterday or the day before, uh, the mine had to shut down again because of uh, shooting and 700 employees were told to go home. And this has been an ongoing issue. Now, clearly, the mine is contentious because it's right on the, the new border, whatever the border is these days. Um, how do you mitigate uh, security concerns for these kinds of companies who might potentially be uh, interested in coming into the country and um, becoming part of the mining industry? Well, so therein lies the uh, argument at hand, right? If, for example, Salt was owned by a Western company, I highly doubt Azerbaijan will be behaving the same way around that company, uh, around the mine. Okay, that's very. There's a lot of literature and research that supports that. Okay, um, just uh, two days ago, it was basically revealed that in Yerask village, uh, the Americans and the Armenians are basically investing in, in mining that deals with uh, various type of the industrial thing, uh, minerals. Um, I would be shocked if Azerbaijan has had the goal to attack an area that has American investments and American basically interest. This is precisely what we're talking about. Azerbaijan's been able to do what it does because there are no repercussions. But one phone call from the United States where strategic interest and economic interests are basically being challenged is going to produce a different dynamic. Another phone call from another country, another phone call from a, another country. And now what you have is basically a diplomatic modality of pressure that is second track or, or soft diplomacy that you really don't have to work day and night to produce, that creates in of itself because now those countries have an interest to protect your stability as opposed to the situation that you have right now. So Azerbaijan's attempt to destabilize, hypothetically speaking, isn't going to scare investors away because once you have invested interest, that those destabilization efforts are going to in of themselves be mitigated. Also, the international community has seen that Armenia's economic growth, even amidst the security crisis, has exceeded all expectations. So the logic that uh, Azerbaijan's security threat will diminish Armenia's uh, uh, in investment environment or its economy hasn't panned out. The, re the uh, outcome has been reversed. So in this context, uh, I think that the, the uh, evidence is very, very straightforward. Once you get sufficient international tension and investment in Armenia's mineral industry, the dynamics are going to be very, very different. Certainly what you're proposing requires uh, much more uh, investigation and, and research and, and um, efforts to, to, to materialize. But from your sort of cursory research into this, does Armenia have the reserves uh, that would attract these uh, global conglomerates or, or, or huge mining companies to actually come in, uh, other than copper and molybdenum, which I believe Armenia has uh, significant reserves of? 
Right. So those are going to be specific to the types of mining companies and uh, the, the amount of uh, natural uh, uh, resource availability we have that is commensurate with their interests. But definitely, I mean, you mentioned copper, for example. Copper is basically going to become, and this is according to industry experts, the, the you know something akin to the next oil uh, with the, the growth of the uh, electrical vehicle industry and all those things that we see developing. So I am not a, obviously a, an energy expert. And so the, the conversation we're having was uh, precisely through a security lens. But conversations with energy experts and, and sort of a lot of the literature out there clearly supports the mining for security doctrine. And that concept actually came from uh, uh, advice and research from energy experts who do uh, uh, address security. And so uh, for Armenia to put together sort of a consortium of experts on energy to map, to basically gauge uh, availability and proceed from there would be the, the more rational step. But we know that Armenia does have a lot of copper resources reserves that uh, the copper mines are the highest taxpayers in Armenia. And so responsible mining and the importance of copper to the growing digital industry is definitely going to be something of very, very immense interest to international corporations. You know, it's fascinating when we think about security, we oftentimes think about hard power, right? Uh, armaments, military, armies. Uh, but in reality, it is, as I said earlier, so multi-pronged. There's so many components to developing a security architecture, especially for a country, small state like Armenia, surrounded by two belligerent neighbors and uh, constantly under attack to utilize every um, weapon, if you will, uh, in, in its arsenal. In this case, it's economic. In this case, it's the mines. Um, just some closing thoughts about this, Narcissus. I mean, as I said, it sounds really great on paper and it sounds, you know, something that could really work in Armenia's uh, favor, you know, not now, perhaps, but perhaps in five years, 10 years from now. Um, just if you could wrap up some thoughts about this and, 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 you know, in your sort of from your own research, how, how fast or how realistic is this at the moment? Of course, just two points. One, this is not a solution to the security problem, sure. but it's a big contribution to the security architecture. So I have to understand that. Security is multi-layered and multifaceted. So this is one component of that. Um, I'll make a very quick example. You know, when we talked about during the 2020 war that Armenia might use Iskander weapons to hit Azerbaijan's oil reserves or oil pipelines, that's ridiculous. No regime in Armenia, no government army would have done that because the international repercussions would have been unimaginable. And so in that context, we saw how Saddam Hussein was punished for simply going after the oil in Kuwait. Countries, powerful countries, when they have vested interests, take that very, very seriously. Armenia has never tapped into that. We need to tap into that. That is, that is the concept at hand. Now, the way we go about doing it, of course, is where all the technical and specific knowledge from the energy uh, security and mining security sector experts are going to come in. How long could this take? Uh, some trajectories suggest uh, up to three years, uh, certain mines could be developed by international investors. Some trajectories suggest five to 10 years. It depends on the type of mine. And of course, uh, as we saw the example with Amosar, it needs to be done in a very, very responsible way that respects the environment and the interests of the communities uh, that you have in the area. So the time trajectory in of itself isn't the problem. 
The first issue is political will, which we're now seeing that Armenia does have because we are diversifying our security architecture. And second, which is very important, knowledge, know-how, the scientific expertise that is required to do this. And uh, my understanding is that there are important uh, uh, individuals, Armenians, diaspora Armenians, who have a lot of experience in this industry, who are ready to help Armenia develop the intellectual and scientific knowledge necessary to make this happen. Yeah, so many gaps to fill, but just final parting thought, if you will. The extraction of copper has resulted in some of the most significant foreign direct investment in Armenia, uh, in Armenia's mining sector and in Armenia in general. So this, uh, I think, is certainly a path worth investigating and pursuing. Thank you so much again, Nerses. Uh, we look forward to reading your next month's uh, security briefing, and we'll have this discussion again at the end of June. Always a pleasure.